Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to drink deeply from your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So in last week's gospel episode, Nicodemus came sneaking around at night in order to find Jesus. He didn't want of his overly religious friends to know what he was doing. Jesus tells Nick before he can ask any questions, he's going to have to be born again. <laughs> Nick's agenda gets thrown out the window, and the next thing you know, they're talking about the wind and the spirit, baptism and church leadership. I don't think any of that was on Nick's mind. Now, the story ends with Tim Tebow's favorite passage, John 3.16. And if we weren't sure if Nicodemus was confused, the last thing Jesus said to him was, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Yeah, that guaranteed that Nick walked away scratching his head. God not sending his son into the world to condemn it stood all against almost everything that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law taught. To them, God was an angry God at anyone who wasn't a Pharisee or a Sadducee. And only by doing exactly what the Pharisees said was there any hope for anyone else. Jesus says that's not the way the church or God works. Talk about a head spinner. By the way, a few weeks ago, I saw this absolutely great meme. It said, you know, if God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, I don't think he sent you either. This week, we move from wherever Jesus was staying in Jerusalem to Jacob's well in Samaria. It's about a 15-hour walk, according to Google. Yeah, our lectionary left out the key connecting verse, though. Uh, right before our text, it said, when the Pharisees heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself wasn't doing the baptizing his disciples were, Jesus left Judea and went again to Galilee. Now, we're only a few months away from John being arrested and beheaded. The church and the government are getting nervous about John's popularity. And so Jesus goes home until his time comes. And by the way, the way you get from Jerusalem to yeah. Galilee is through Samaria. The text says six in the evening, but since the Jewish day begins at uh, six in the evening and ends at six at night, and that means it's noon, it's, it's hot. Unless Jesus stopped along the way, he's been walking for hours, so it makes sense that he is both hungry and thirsty. Now, Jesus sits down at the well, and he just rests, and his disciples run off to go find some fast food. Now, this just isn't any well. It's Jacob's well, seven foot six inches wide and 135 feet deep. It was dug around 1700 BC. Now, are any of you claustrophobic? I want you to think about this. Back then, um, they could only dig a well by hand. Now, it's only about seven feet wide. It's 135 feet. How would you like to be down 135 feet with your little bucket, filling it up with sand, letting them raise it all the way to the top, dumping out, and then sending the bucket back down? Yeah, how, how would that make you feel? Now, a quick scan of the Old Testament, I discovered at least 20 men and women who met their spouses at the well. Now, the well is where the women would go to get the water for the family. And often they would send the young ladies, and the boys knew this. So if you were looking for a wife, the best place to, well, to see one and meet one would be at the well. Now, Jacob found Rachel at her father's well. And, and all of this, by the way, is important backstory. So Jesus isn't looking for a wife. However, there is some deep symbolism in this story. See, in John's gospel, there are a couple of important things that you might miss unless you know Jewish tradition and Jewish culture. 
When Jesus provides wine for the wedding at Cana, well, that's the job of the groom's family. Key word, groom. Combine this with John 3.25, where John says, A dispute arose between John's disciples, we're talking John the baptizer, and a few and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about uh, and who was with you across the Jordan, Jesus, is baptizing and everyone is flocking to him. And John responded, No one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And notice how both John the apostle and John the baptizer are setting up the wedding motif here. John the baptizer says God's people are the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom, and he is the best man. We get a couple of chapters later, and Jesus is walking through Samaria, stops at Jacob's well. Yeah, the place where Jacob met his favorite wife, Rachel. A place where people go to find brides, and who shows up at noon in the heat of the day but a Samaritan woman. Not exactly one of God's people, at least according to the Jewish leaders, but we'll see how this works out. Two surprises for her. First, someone else is at the well in the middle of the day. Second, that someone else was a Jewish male, a rabbi nonetheless. There is a lot, now we don't know about this woman, but coming to the well at the heat of the day tells us that she most likely had something to hide. And when we learn her story, five husbands and a boyfriend who's not her husband, we understand maybe why she was a little reluctant to go when everybody else was there. Jesus meets her at her greatest fear and her greatest need. Going back to last week, Jesus told Nicodemus, you know, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't say to save Israel or save Jews or save the country that exists at 31.0461 degrees north and 34.8516 degrees east, or only people who wear yarmulkes. No, Jesus said the world, and the world includes Samaritans who were an ethno-religious group descended from Ephraim and Manasseh and who were not deported during the Assyrian exile. And by the way, they considered themselves the real Jewish nation, holding to the true beliefs contrary to anything the Pharisees and Sadducees and others might say about them. So we've got two religious and cultural thought processes coming face to face. Jesus, the male rabbi, and the Samaritan divorced woman all winding up at the well together. All sorts of beliefs, rules, laws, expectations, traditions, they're about to collide. And because it's Jesus, we know it is not an accident. (laughs) Jesus is there on purpose for this woman, even if she doesn't know it. Now, this is not uh, just a metaphor or a fable, because if we reduce this story to just that, we're denying God's word. And if we only see this story as Jesus and one woman, well then we're missing out on the intended connections. To see the story through the lens of both the Old Testament and a little bit of the New Testament is to see it with an expectation that God speaks through stories so that anyone and everyone can understand. And now we can see Jesus as the bridegroom, the woman at the well as the bride, representing not just herself but the whole world. Jesus arrives on his faithful steed to scoop her up, even though her dress is dirty and tattered. 
And, and, and her makeup has been ruined by the tears of her unhappiness. Nevertheless, Jesus takes her. And together they ride off into the sunset for a happily ever after. I know it's a little sappy, but that's what this story is. To quote Julie Andrews from The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning because that's a very good place to start. The church is referred to in the Bible as the Bride of Christ, all the way back in the Old Testament. And especially in the Old Testament, there are both metaphors and actual stories of the bride, our unfaithfulness. The book of Hosea and the letters to the churches in Revelation are, well, especially unkind in their portrayal of the church, meaning us. And yet, God does not give up on His church. Now, that is a very important and necessary thing to know about God. He doesn't give up on us, even when we're unfaithful. Now, our Savior IA is a community of faith that is Lutheran, but that word Lutheran is actually too limiting. We are Christians who express our faith through Lutheran teachings and practice. First and foremost, we are always Christians. Then we are Lutherans. I know, not everybody sees it that way. The church as a whole, and our church specifically, can be seen as the community well. A place where Jesus offers living water, which is a metaphor for love and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. We are to be a place where anyone, and the key word here is anyone, can come, lower the bucket 135 feet, when they pull it up, find cool, crisp water to quench their thirst. Now, it's got to be said, Jesus dug the well, and then he left it to us to take care of. Each Sunday and Wednesdays during Lent and any other time we get together as a community of faith, Jesus walks into our midst and asks for a cup of water. It's a conversation starter to be sure. And I want you to think why he would ask it and where such a question might lead. Think about all the things we as a church, we as individuals who make up the church, might not be so proud of. What things might we be trying to hide? Are there times we avoid coming to church because like the woman at the well, there's just certain things that we don't want to deal with. The church is supposed to be a place of vulnerability and transparency. As a community, we should be able to be honest about our life, our failings, our successes. But as in all families and communities, we tend to judge rather than love. We hide, we condemn, we're mean. Most of the time, by the way, this is just our way of, of uh, well, putting up a wall so that people can't see what's actually going on in our life. 25 or so years ago, my office was where the church nursery is, and I had these wooden jealousy windows, and that meant that I could hear everything that was going on right outside my windows. And one day I was sitting there getting some work done, and I heard a hammer, and I knew it was close. And when I walked out the door, there was a guy, and he was making concrete forms, and he was drilling huge holes into the bricks. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, Tom Neal told me to put up a sign that says sanctuary. So that's what I'm doing. <sighs> you know, I just want to tell you that until a few months ago, that sign greeted everybody for the last 25 or so years as they came and went. We finally had to take it down when the concrete literally disintegrated and there wasn't much left. And it kind of said atuary instead of sanctuary. A sanctuary, though, is a safe space a place where you can take a deep breath, where you can be still and know that you don't have to be God because there is a God who loves you. A place of living water that quenches the thirst of our soul. Now, if you have ever felt, by the way, that I or someone here has kept this place from being a sanctuary for you, please accept my apology. It's part of the problem, by the way, 
of a church being made up of sinners like me. I need to note, this is not a safe space if your intention is to harm others or your beliefs are in total opposition to God or His Word. There are those who think they can hide here, but Jesus has very strong words for them, as must we. So this last week, we actually made Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, we didn't make the cover, so it's not the Dr. Hook and the Medicine show, um, you know, but, but we made Rolling Stone. And if you get a chance, look it up. It's not a complete article. There's a lot of things, by the way, that they didn't put in, sometimes because somebody didn't add it. But there are individuals within every church who are coming to sabotage it. And we have to be willing to stand up and say, this is God's house, not yours, not mine. And this is what God said about his house. And this, this is who we need to be. And when we sin, we sin. But when we know we sin, we need to ask for forgiveness. So just look up Rolling Stone LCMS. You'll find the article. I also need to say this, having confessed your sins and failures and fears and anxieties and hurts and losses, it was never God's intention for you to remain here. You come in, you confess, you hear His word of forgiveness or maybe His word of, of, of encouragement if you're hurt, and it's done. No debate, no sitting around asking endless what-if questions just so you don't have to go back to the people you hurt or the people who hurt you. See, the truth we tell here acknowledges and confesses that we are sinners, that we are broken, that we are hurt. And a simple you are forgiven or a you are loved and you're not alone, it will not fix or erase all of the sinfulness, the brokenness, or the hurt. Our sin is forgiven, but we still have to deal with all the consequences. And when it comes to brokenness and hurt, sometimes the best thing we can do is to, well, create a plan to manage the pain. If we ask what the purpose for our coming to the well is, most of us would say it's because we all need water, and there's truth to that. But the well was more than just a place of water. It was a community. It was life. And the woman, coming as she did when she did, she had cut herself off from the very things that she needed most, but the very things she was afraid of. Jesus didn't condemn her. He simply spoke the truth, but he spoke it in love. Nothing and everything changed for her. She still had had five husbands, and the one she was living with right then was not her husband. The community had labeled her, but she was no longer afraid. As St. Paul said, if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And the truth is, there are a lot of people who remain against us. <laughs> There's a long list of them. But you know what? You see, this is the promise we've got. We're no longer afraid to face them. Because the one who is in us is greater than anyone who is in the world. The woman leaves her water jar behind, runs through the city saying, Come and meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? You can imagine some of the people in town saying, Well, he could have told you what you'd have done. We've been whispering about it for years. But, but it wasn't that that caught their attention. It was the fact that she said, Come and meet this person who knew everything about me. Why would she want them to come and meet this person if he's just going to rattle off all of her sins and failures? Embedded in the Samaritan woman's invitation is the key to the understanding. People are scared. People are ashamed. People are suffering. And many of them have avoided the well because they didn't want to deal with those things. They need more than just water. 
They need a real community, one that speaks the truth, but always in love. And the best people to speak the truth in love are those who have lived it out, who know how satisfying the water at the well is, not because it's clean and cold from 135 feet down, but because of the one who provided it, the one who was willing to say, I know you're broken, I know you're hurting, I know your whole life, and I love you anyway. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn it. He came to save it, to restore our relationship with God and also with one another. Because, you know, we're going to spend forever together, so it's a good time for us to start to learn to work with one another. To do that, we've got to face the truth, and that can be scary. But that's why Jesus stands there. You'll notice he didn't just fling a truth bomb at her and then run the other direction. He stood there, not allowing us to get away until we discover what we've really been thirsty for. And that's for him, the only one who knows everything about us and still loves us. One little more metaphorical point. The woman had had five husbands, and the one she was living with at that moment was not her husband. That's a total of six. That's the biblical number for imperfect or incomplete. Whatever she was looking for, she hadn't found it in six relationships. Jesus makes seven, the biblical number for completeness, wholeness. Now, until we get to heaven, we're not going to know what happened that day when the woman went home to her boyfriend. But regardless of how the rest of her days played out, thanks to Jesus, she got her happily ever after. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you confess your faith with me in the words of the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.